I'm Anj. And I'm Anirudh. Welcome to another episode of Kathakar, a podcast in which we discuss important turning points in history and their human aspects. In the beginning of the 19th century, British settlers came to Zimbabwe in search of land and gold. Under the leadership of Cecil Rhodes, the British South Africa Company would attempt to infiltrate native lands and seize Mzilikazi and his son Lobengula's kingdom and resources. After years of strange British rule, Shona and Indebeli resistance to white authority during the Second Chimaranga War led to Zimbabwe gaining their independence. Unfortunately, the remnants of British rule still lingered on today and have led to a conflicted state. To discuss the history of Zimbabwe and the effects of colonial rule on the modern-day nation, we're joined by Dr. Timothy Burke, a professor of history at Swarthmore College and a co-director at the Adelet Foundation, who specializes in modern African history, specifically Southern Africa, including surveys of African history, the environmental history of Africa, and the social history of consumption. So, let's get started. All right. Well, hello, Dr. Burke. So the first question that we have for you and we always ask our guests is a contextualization question. So the first one we have is what were the pre-colonial societies lifestyles like, such as their social structure and their different languages? Okay, so excellent. So one of the complexities here, and this is true for a lot of of sub-Saharan Africa, is then when you say, well, what were the languages like? Who are the people? We have to use names that were conferred on languages and people by European colonizers. Um, and the reason is we don't, we don't have names. We don't have, in a sense, a sense of what people called themselves. So conventionally, what, what folks today, uh, including Zimbabweans, would say were the two kind of major groups of people living in what's now Zimbabwe prior to uh, the sort of late 19th century arrival of the British were the Shona um, and the Indibeli. And the Shona, when we get back to prior to the British arrival, are not one people. They don't live under one rule or one state. They actually live in a whole variety of different kinds of political arrangements. So there were large centralized states in what's now Zimbabwe, primarily in the the southeast part of the country, uh, associated in particular with the ruin that today is called Great Zimbabwe that has kind of lent its name to the country. Uh, and that was a, I was a large state that was that was mining gold and trading gold um, from uh, sort of what's now Zimbabwe into uh, what's now Mozambique into East Africa. And much of the gold that was being traded that way was actually traveling across the Indian Ocean to South Asia to East Asia. Um, we know that in part because uh, porcelain from China has been found in parts of Southern Africa, including Zimbabwe. Um, and so that was a state, you know, that had a centralized ruler, a Mutapa, an emperor. Um, and, and it was, you know, it, it had a fairly large territorial reach, but there were also lots of small chiefdoms, um, you know, sometimes no more than maybe three or four or five villages of people who were closely related. Um, and so Shona speakers, people speaking the languages that were mutually intelligible to each other that we now today called Shona, that, that missionaries kind of standardized into a single language, British missionaries, you know, uh, sort of 
occupied most of the northern and eastern and some of the western part of what is today Zimbabwe. And actually, people who speak Shona uh, or a language like Shona live in Mozambique. Um, some of them live in northern South Africa, uh, where they're known as Venda. The Indibeli, on the other hand, are, were relatively recent arrivals into what's now Zimbabwe. They were a group of people led by a, a man named Mzilikazi, um, who were, uh, he was one of uh, Shaka, the sort of former of the Zulu Empire's um, lieutenants. And he more or less decided he had enough of Shaka. So he took his loyalists and some of his cattle and they went northward. They fought uh, a group of Afrikaners um, who were in the sort of South African interior at the same time. They decided they'd had enough of that too. And so they went further north um, and they set up their own small empire in what is now sort of South Zimbabwe and, and collected tribute from some of the Shona chiefs nearby them who sort of didn't have enough military power to, to fight them off. So those are the two big groups. There is a third group of people who've been in what is now Zimbabwe for a very long time. Um, the Tonga, who primarily live in the Zambezi Valley, right at the northern border of the country, very small numbers. Um, they're connected to groups of people who've been in Southern Africa for millennia, um, but they, they don't have a lot of political influence either in Zimbabwe or in the other countries that they reside. So in the relevance of what we're going to talk about next, what were, who so you just talked about like, uh, sorry if I butchered a name, but Mzili Kazi. If I... oh, that's good. You got it. All right. Perfect. So Mzili Kazi and uh, the king. So at this time, you talked about how they're like relatively new people who came up from South Africa and they moved up. So what was the relationship like between uh, this tribe of people and the Shona at the time? Right. So, you know, the, again, the Shona, by this point, the, the large state of the of the Mutapas that was the state that had created Great Zimbabwe had kind of fallen apart. Um, uh, so it was it, so there were still kind of bits and pieces where there were sort of large chiefdoms, but nothing that could really mount a successful military resistance to the Indibeli, to Zilakazi's people. So the relationship was, I would say, wasn't outright hostility or war, but basically Mzilikazi collected tribute from the Shona that were closest to him, the communities and chiefdoms that he had the most immediate access to. But he also co cooperated with quite a few of them. You know, they didn't have sort of treaties on paper, but a lot of them had arrangements, for example, for facilitating ivory trading, which was another big source of, of potential wealth for a lot of kingdoms in the interior, um, chiefdoms in the interior, is ivory was being bought at that time um, uh, in global trade in, in, in pretty significant amounts. Uh, so, you know, he had kind of what we would think of as, as trade treaties with some Shona chiefdoms, with others, he more or less, he and his guys would show up and say, hand over some something good and we'll leave you alone. Um, and so it varied. And then of course there were other Shona chiefdoms that were too far away effectively from where his center of power was, uh, which is sort of was right where the second largest city in Zimbabwe today, Bulawayo is it's, on this map, it's kind of right behind my head. Um, so uh, yeah, so it was, a, it was a range of relationships, all of which were relatively new. Um, 
unsettled in the sense that they were always being renegotiated, uh, uh, always kind of provisional um, and informal. All right. So then moving into like the colonial, what really happened between the relationship? So uh, I don't know if the British came in yet or not. So what really happened? So let me rephrase this question, really. So Mazili Kazi, he eventually dies in 18 some, sorry, uh, 1868, right? And then uh, there's supposed there was a power struggle of some sort, correct? Or yeah, a minor one, but basically uh, his son Lobangula takes over. All right. So then, what happens between uh, like the British, the incoming British settlers, and the other tribes that are living in? Zimbabwe at the time. Yeah, so Mzilikazi and and his son Lobangula both had enough experience from having previously come out of further south in South Africa with the presence of Europeans, especially they had had an active military conflict with the Afrikaners that sort of then known as the Boers who were um, moving into the interior of Southern Africa into the Transvaal at that time to know that that things were changing in the region. So they had a regional perspective that to some extent, most of the Shona chiefdoms didn't really. And so they understood they needed to sort of keep abreast of what was going on. They needed to know, for example, were some of those Afrikaner forces coming further north? They needed to actually stay in touch with sort of kind of global trade tendencies because they wanted to know where they could make the most money selling ivory. So they encouraged um, representatives of the London Missionary Society in this case, a guy named Robert Moffat, um, to come north um, and stay at, at their capital, Bulawayo, um, and just basically kind of be there. I mean, you know, the missionary said, sure, can we try and convert people to Christianity? And Mzilikazi and then Lobangula were sort of like, sure, you go ahead and jabber at them about whatever the hell that is, that book is that you keep carrying around, um, you know, but, but, you know, keep in touch with us and don't get out of, out of um, your place. Uh, but mostly what he was hoping is that the missionaries would provision him intelligence or some, you know, information about what was going on, which they did, more or less. Um, uh, and that's a pretty familiar thing that happened uh, over in what's now Botswana um, with, with King Kama III, kept missionaries around for the same reason. Um, Mosheshwe, who was a sort of Sutu chief in South Africa, kept missionaries around for that reason. They were a valuable way to kind of interpret what Europeans were up to. So for about 20 years after Mzilikazi's death, um, primarily the presence of Europeans in what's now Zimbabwe was about uh, occasional hunters. So um, folks would come for forward, you know, into from South Africa, um, generally by themselves to hunt. Um, and, and they'd have to get the permission of say Mzilikazi or of Shona chiefs if they were in Shona lands. Um, to hunt, and they generally weren't allowed to hunt elephants because the ivory was the valuable thing there. Um, they got people who started to show up um, trying to get a sense of whether there was any mineral wealth in what's now Zimbabwe. And they also got some other missionaries and they got some merchants, some guys from South Africa who just loaded up a wagon full of stuff they thought they could trade um, and went north, you know, with a uh, wagon drawn by oxen to sort of try to trade with uh, African communities in the interior. 
Um, so Europeans started to get a little more sense of what was up there. And they already kind of knew because the Portuguese at a much earlier date um, had come up the Zambezi Valley um, in part trying to trade with the Mutapa with that big centralized empire. And so the Shona also kind of knew, you know, there was a bigger world out there. Um, there were these people from far, far away. Um, they, they weren't always to be trusted because the Portuguese also tried to kind of conquer parts of interior Southern Africa. Um, and they were actually defeated at one point by a, uh, an army of the Matapa. Um, so, you know, so the, everybody kind of knows in the region to varying degrees that there's something bubbling up, that things are changing fast, that the Portuguese suddenly seem to be much more involved again in Mozambique because they've kind of not been for a, a good while. There are these Afrikaners, there are, there are these people called the British um, and, and the Indibeli under Lobangula and, and Zilikazi knew more than many of the Shona chiefs did about this. In 1890, for a whole complicated, it's like we gotta, we'd have to go super deep into South African history to get the full uh, 911 or 411 on this, but um, Cecil Rhodes leads uh, a, basically a mercenary army that he called the Pioneer Column north uh, across um, the Limpopo River um, into what's now Zimbabwe. And what he's done is his mercenary army is being paid for by a, a company that he's listed on the stock exchange in London that's the British South Africa Company. Um, and what he's promised to do is secure lands north of the Limpopo for, for the British South Africa Company to um, have mineral concessions on. He claims he's got a treaty signed by Lobangula and some of the Shona, um, you know, and it's it's basically bogus. Uh, he sent a guy named Charles Rudd to go get it, you know, and, and so he's claiming he's got legal rights um, in, in Zimbabwe and then also in what's now Zambia and what's uh, the, the smaller country sort of off, oops, there, there we go, straight up, um, called Malawi. Um, and so his, his column moves north in 1890. And, and more or less what Rhodes is trying to do is, is he, he got kind of frozen out of the gold rush in the Witzvaderjan in South Africa after having been a guy who made you know, millions on the diamond mines in Kimberley. And he's promised his stockholders that there's going to be more gold up there um, somewhere in the interior. It'll be just like the Witzvaderjan. Um, so they go... Lobangula says, okay, you have my permission to travel through my lands and you can stop in some places and maybe reside here. And I'll kind of give you permission to go up to this place, Harari, which wasn't under his control. That was in sort of Shona lands. And if you want, you can stay there and set up a trading post or something like that. But it doesn't take the Indibeli very long and Lobangula very long to realize that's not, Rhodes is not passing through. He's here to stay. He's here as a conqueror. So in 1893, they fight. Um, they attack Rhodes's forces. Um, there's a brief but really intense sort of war. And, and Rhodes's mercenaries come out on top. Um, and Lobangula, uh, so the Indibeli have to surrender, more or less. Um, but that's only about four years of peace because in 1897, the Shona and the Indibeli, who didn't necessarily coordinate anything prior to this, simultaneously rise up 
against the British South Africa Company forces in what's now Zimbabwe. Uh, and it's a coordinated revolt, um, coordinated in part by religious prophets um, um, who've been passing secret messages. And it, and it forces the, the folks who, who'd gone out a little way from Harare and from Bulawayo, like traders and merchants and officials and uh, all sorts of folks who were looking for gold and looking for riches, they all had to kind of retreat um, into those two sort of strongholds because the Shona and the Indibeli succeed for about six months in really rocking the white invaders back on their heels. But in the end, the British South Africa Company mobilizes enough force um, to defeat the, the uh, folks that are, are rebelling. This is often called the first Chimarenga, you know, this war um, against invaders. Um, and most of the ringleaders are executed. Uh, and that's kind of the end of the phase of, of conquest. And so from 1898 on, the British South Africa Company as a private entity is in control of what's now Zimbabwe, what's now Zambia, um, and what's now Malawi. Zimbabwe gets called Southern Rhodesia. Zambia gets called Northern Rhodesia, which is, you know, it's like super big ass kissing to Cecil Rhodes. And then Malawi is Nyasa land. Okay, so I just want to backtrack a little bit to yeah. when we talked about Cecil Rhodes. So you mentioned that like motivation for him was um, minerals, right? Which I assume are like gold and diamonds because those were the prevalent. Primarily, ones. that's what he's promising his stockholders. There'll be a lot of gold. Right. Trust us. Mm -hmm. So when I know that his dream was to build the Cape to Cairo railway, was that because of um, the mineral mining? Is that why he wanted that specific railway built or was there another reason? Sort of, yeah. Not, I mean, he, you know, in a sense, he was also a super grandiose uh big shot big mouth he's kind of you know the uh i don't know what like the worst combination of sort of jeff bezos and elon musk and whoever else your least favorite billionaire is today um i mean he was a self-promoter um he he grabbed headlines whenever he could he was very interested in political power he was constantly trying to sort of talk up himself as a person who was going to you know make the british empire bigger and grander all the time um, while he was also often talking to the South African public about sort of like South Africa will be its own thing. So the Cape to Cairo Railroad was his sort of way of participating in what's known as the scramble for Africa, the sort of general um, sort of moment from about 1875, where Western Europe took all of Sub-Saharan Africa with the exception of Ethiopia and kind of technically on paper, Liberia and Sierra Leone, drew lines on a map and said, this belongs to you, this belongs to you. Um, and Rhodes was maneuvering in all of that to sort of try and say that England needed to end up in possession of a corridor of territories stretching all the way from Egypt, um, Cairo, um, to South Africa. And, it, you know, it wasn't he didn't really have serious plans for that. That was just a kind of, you know, grandiose, you know, uh, slogan. Um, that was designed to encourage the British government to be as aggressive as it could be in the scramble and seize as much territory as it could, even when it didn't really know necessary have some specific purpose in mind. Um, and then, of course, in 1890, you know, Rhodes sort of goes out and he didn't get permission from anybody. Um, you know, he just has this company and he's got these resources and he calls for mercenaries the, the the pioneer column is like got americans in it it's it's got 
people from all over Western Europe. It does have British soldiers, but it's not an official project of the British government. And he just seizes it. And then he says, see what I did, guys? I got us, you know, this far towards the Cape to Cairo Railway. So it's really kind of a, a slogan, a publicity stunt, um, a, a way of urging England to be a more active imperialist power in Africa. So, sorry, that discussion uh, prompted me to ask, before Rhodes, were like the British trying to get into Africa, but they didn't have a reason? Because you said that Rhodes kind of went there without permission and he just went there because he wanted to. So, like, was that helpful for the British or did they want, like, I guess, proper proceedings? So there's an old line that most most people in my field, including me, like, go, oh, yeah, no, that's not right. Um, but that that has a little bit of validity about it and was often said first and foremost about the British imperial experience in India, which was that the British acquired an empire in a fit of absent mindedness, you know, which was sort of a notion that they didn't really mean to, but they, you know, they kind of woke up one day and said, oh, shit, we got an empire. Um, uh, how'd that happen? The, the bit of truth in it is this, is that, that in the mid 19th century, England was under sort of a, a government that was avowedly liberal, small L, not in the American sense, that um, actually sort of did believe as its official doctrine that England could be a dominant global power, a dominant industrial power, a dominant naval power, without having to have empire. So this is post-American revolution. England is actually sort of saying it officially, the, the sort of liberals in government, that they were following the kind of Adam Smith line. You know, you don't want mercantilism. You don't want, you don't want empire. You want to free trade your way to dominance. Um, you know, markets, all that stuff, right? Um, and and empire is just expensive and entangling, and you you have to send troops all over the place, and we don't need it. That was going on at the same time that sort of England was contradicting some of that in certain places. So South Africa, most predominantly. England ends up in control of the western half of, the, of what's now the nation of South Africa. At the end of the 18th century, it's, it, it's a concession that's part of European wars, the part of the wars connected to Napoleon, um, that they get from the Netherlands, from the Dutch. And what happens is the governors again sent to Cape Town, sort of right at the very western edge, um, sort of take it upon themselves to say, oh, hey, look, there are these people just a little farther out beyond our border called the Cosa. And um, they kind of are threatening our borders. So I'm going to send some guys over there just to fight a few of them, just to make them understand what our borders are. And then they kind of did sort of go, oh, whoops. Um, now we're in control of some territory we weren't in control of before. Um, I, I can't, I'm sorry, guys. I know we weren't, weren't supposed to do that, but I'm annexing it to the empire. And, and so there was this, in the mid 19th century, this slow creep of British power in sub-Saharan Africa in the places that they had been involved in anyway at the end of the 18th century. It, this happened very much with the French empire too, like in, in what's now Senegal and West Africa, is this kind of creeping march of the frontiers, wars with, um, African peoples who are right at the frontiers of existing British territorial power. But in 1875, that just kind of kicks off 
like crazy. And the British do start seizing territories um, very far away from anything that they'd had a previous interest in. Um, you know, they, they end up, for example, in control of all of what's now Sudan, which is a huge country. The Belgian king, Le uh, Leopold, gets involved in seizing all of what's the Congo. The Germans um, don't really want an empire exactly, but they, they figure like it's becoming a prestige thing. So they sort of get Togo and Tanzania. So the British kind of get very heavily involved in that prior to Rhodes. In fact, um, the conquest of what's now Zimbabwe, Zambia, and Malawi is one of the last parts of the scramble for Africa. Um, it's sort of Rhodes getting in on what's the last unclaimed thing. All right. So then I guess we're going to move on to, so after we're going to move a little forward. So now after Rhodes has basically taken over all of the Rhodesia now, uh, what happens to the colony? So just real I don't know how to phrase this, but like what happens in just total? So basically, um, Rhodes doesn't dies not too long after that, right? And so the uh, folks who are in charge of the British South Africa Company are sort of talking to their, their shareholders back in, in London. And the shareholders are like, so when is the, the second big gold rush like the Witzwaters are on happening? When are we going to be like gazillionaires? And they're like, any day now. Um, so they do start trying to mine, and there are some places where there are some somewhat promising looking material deposits. There's a very ancient um, geological structure in, in northern Zimbabwe um, that is fairly mineral rich, um, but uh, they didn't know where to find the kind of um, the important sort of uh, veins there at the time, because a lot of them are like things like platinum. Um, they were looking for gold, and there was gold, but there wasn't that much gold. Um, and, and it wasn't uh, worth the effort in some cases that it would have taken to mine it, given that the Witzvaterzran, you know, was um, a much richer source of gold um, and it was a well-established uh, mining operation. So, so they, you know, they do some mining, of course, they're going to need mine workers, right? So, so what do they do? Well, England was at this point, politically at least, um, blocked from doing anything that looked too close to enslaving people. Um, you know, that, that that was a tenant of British politics, was anti-slavery, um, that it was a century old. It go, went all the way back to England being one of the first European countries to embrace some form of abolition. So they had to constantly sort of not look like they were, you know, taking people at gunpoint more or less and, and making them go down in the mines. At the same time, they weren't exactly going to pay them a fair wage. So there was a tremendous amount of kind of disguised sorts of ways of trying to think about coercion, doing things like going to Shona or Indibeli chiefs, or sometimes chiefs in the areas surrounding Zimbabwe, outside the borders of British South Africa control, and saying, you have to send, you, you owe us tax. Um, but instead of tax, if you send, you know, five young men to the mines, you know, we'll let you off. No, no, no hut tax for you this year. That'd be great. And one thing that chiefs did have, even though they'd lost a lot of their, their capacities and powers and were living under sort of white rule or white company rule in this case, was sometimes the ability to mobilize, you know, to compel young men um, to do things on behalf of the community, on behalf of their kin groups. 
So they, they use various mechanisms to try to get people into the mines. But the thing is, the mines weren't really paying out. There was a big coal mine in uh, Wangi, which is, you can sort of see it on this map, is, a, is a, today a big national park. There were some gold mines um, and they were paying out, but they weren't paying out the way that the shareholders expected. So the company pivots um, in the early 1900s and says, you know what this is actually gonna be? And it's go, oh man, we're gonna make so much money. Um, it's gonna be a farming colony. Um, and they kind of, you know, throw up the bat signal to sort of uh, white people in Europe um, who are looking for an opportunity. And they say, come to beautiful Rhodesia, southern Rhodesia, and we'll give you a farm. Like you might have to pay like five dollars for it or whatever, but we'll give you like land and, and there will be workers on your farm, African workers. And of course, you know, it's land taken from Africans. Um, and there is a wave over the first half of the 20th century of land appropriation, where the best agricultural land is bought by, or in some cases, just straight up given to white agriculturalists. Africans are told you can reside on this land, but only if you work for the guy who owns it. Um, so there are farm workers who end up residing in community in land that they previously worked themselves and are told, you know, in order to continue to reside here, that's what has to happen. Missions, missionaries did the same thing. They set up mission stations and you were allowed to stay on the mission if you converted and you did some work for the missionary. Um, so it in bits and pieces gets turned into a capitalist agriculture, uh, agriculturalist state. Um, and that's where the sort of the source of profit and where the settlers who will eventually be like the big problem come from. It, they never come in the numbers that they came to South Africa. Um, but as a result, still, by the 1920s, there's a pretty substantial number of, of whites living in Zimbabwe permanently, um, who most of whom are involved in agriculture. They're growing crops like tobacco, cash crops. They're also growing things like maize, corn, um, basically to feed the population, including mine workers. And in order to um, make money on maize, they had to actually try and get Africans to stop growing it because Africans were out competing them. Um, so the government passes laws called the Maize Control Acts that basically say, if you're African and you're growing maize, you have to sell it to the government for a really crappy price. If you're white and you're growing maize, you can sell it on the free market and make a lot of money. How's that for a deal? We're like, you know, um, so there's a lot of that kind of stuff going on. Land being taken from Africans, Africans being sort of uh, given a raw deal in every way possible, and, and basically white settlers becoming the favored citizens of this territory. Um, and then so actually, this, just one sec, in, in 1923, the, the, the other important piece of this is because so many white settlers have come in relative terms, it starts to be embarrassing for this to be a company territory. So it's put under what's called responsible government and the white settlers are now allowed to vote for, you know, their own representatives, but they're also still part of the British Empire. I right, sorry for cutting you off earlier. I was just going to ask. Um, so, did the like farming settlements for the maize and other cash crops? Did they help pay back some of what the shareholders for the British South Africa Company like were promised? Promised in quotes. So they made some profit. You know, um, some of those cash crops were valuable, but a lot of it was also. You know, it's the kind of thing where if you've said something's happening, you're going to try to make it happen and pretend it's happening for ideological reasons. So like one really good example of that 
um, not as much in Southern Rhodesia, more in Northern Rhodesia and Malawi, is some Europeans come in and set up plantations and they start growing cotton. There's a glut in the global market at that point of cotton. And they honestly are growing in part for racist reasons. They have this idea that when you have black people who are your subjects, the thing that they're most fit to growing is cotton. And it's straight out of an association of the, with the history of slavery in the new world. Um, and, and you know, you can make some money, but it's not a hugely profitable crop. A lot of it is just basically so you can be like, you know, a, a white dude with a plantation, um, you know, that you got for almost nothing, ordering people around and making just enough money to kind of cover your costs. You're not getting super wealthy, but you often came in with some money anyway. Um, that's also true in Kenya, by the way, um, where there's a white settler state that operates very similarly is it's, it's, you know, kind of want to be aristocrats, um, or, or want to be plantation owners. But in Southern Rhodesia, there are also white farmers, you know, who are operating where they're, they're making money basically by having kind of medium sized farms that are selling into a local food market. So they are, they're like selling cheese and they're selling honey and they're, uh, you know, they're selling meat and they're selling, you know, so they're, they're like kind of supporting an internal consumer market from the 1930s on, especially during the Great Depression. And they're making a pretty decent living doing it. They're not getting super wealthy, um, you know, and they're the people that kind of form the backbone of, of the later sort of Rhodesian mentality in which they say, you know, like, look, we're just good farmers. We're sons of the soil. Uh, you know, uh, we have no pretensions to be gazillionaires. Um, so there's money being made. Tobacco especially is, is a big cash crop. And the company is making some of that money. But basically by the, the 19, late 1920s, the British South Africa company is not really an economic concern um, that's going forward as, as a sort of wealthy, successful stockholding company. The company, the country, the, the, the territories that it owned are really transitioning into being um, colonies of the British Empire, which at least in one case also have notable numbers of white settlers in them. So then moving on, what happens, like, as the 20th century progresses, what happens to uh, Southern Rhodesia? Like, how does it eventually gain its independence? Basically, you know, kind of what happens after World War II is the official policy of the British government is that the British Empire will continue. And Winston Churchill in particular was sort of super aggressive about that. In negotiations during World War II, the United States kept insisting to Churchill, you're going to have to give up the empire. You know, like we're fighting a war against uh, you know, Nazi conquerors, you know, empire is kind of a bad look. Um, and in effect, during World War II, neither England nor France were in any position, especially France, having been conquered by the, the Nazis, to exert imperial power over the territories they technically held on paper anyway. It becomes pretty clear, first and foremost in India, but eventually in sub-Saharan Africa too, that the British Empire is going to have to transition to something that looks like independence. Um, and, and so that's relatively easy for the British to imagine in some places like Ghana, which is the first 
uh, of the British possessions in sub-Saharan Africa to be granted its independence. Because all they have there is an imperial state. You know, so they have officials, they have, they have a governor, they have, but they don't have white settlers. So they don't have people that they think of as their people, um, as having political rights within um, British politics there. So they are like, okay, it's fine. Um, go and have your independence. We'll stay friends. We'll have a commonwealth. Um, but when it comes to South Africa, they'd already given independence to quite a long time ago. Okay, so the, the, the Union of South Africa is formed after the, the Boer War. So South Africa technically isn't a British possession at all when we get to this post-war period. However, the, the territories that had once been held by the British South Africa Company that are now British imperial possessions, Southern Rhodesia, Northern Rhodesia, and the Asaland, um, the British kind of look at those and they go, oh, there are white settlers there, especially in Southern Rhodesia. We should figure out a solution that, that like, um, moves towards have Africans having political rights, but that doesn't give them like the voting majority. So they propose a Central African Federation that would take all of those three territories and would basically give Africans some voting rights, but it would give like whites a continued sort of disproportionate share of political power guaranteed for quite a long time. Um, and they said, this is a transitional thing. We'll get there eventually. This is preparing the grounds for independence. And there are already nationalist movements in all three countries. And the nationalist leaders of those movements say, no, we're not putting up with this. We know what this, this is a bad deal. This makes us junior members when we're the vast majority of people in these territories. Um, and we want to be, these three places want to be independent of each other. And, and that's partly just because the nationalist leaders involved wanted power in their own territories and didn't think of themselves as being, as being part of the same movement at all. So like the guy who became the first leader of independent Malawi, Hastings Banda, um, it was actually sort of in a political sense, rather conservative um, and becomes an important American ally in the Cold War and actually is pretty friendly to, to apartheid South Africa. Whereas Kenneth Kaunda, who just died, who was the first leader of independent Zambia, you know, was, was basically kind of a soft socialist who saw himself as, as aligned with um, the Soviet Union and, and kind of with, with communist states, uh, although he wasn't particularly a communist ideologically in, in terms of the policies he followed. Southern Rhodesia, you know, everybody can see is going to be a different kind of problem because basically there's a there's very few white settlers in northern Rhodesia and Zambia, and there's very few in Malawi, and they're just not going to be a politically powerful force. But in southern Rhodesia, there's a decent number, um, about I think at its peak maybe nine percent of the the total population, and and um, and a lot of them have been there for a while a generation, two generations, in some cases, three generations, and they've got roots and they, they feel they have rights and they feel like they really don't want African majority rule. There is a, a, a leader, prime minister, Garfield Todd, um, who was elected post-World War II in Southern Rhodesia, who tries to get his fellow whites to see that they're gonna have to agree to a transition to African majority rule. 
And he does it in the kind of the most polite sorts of ways. He's like, basically, guys, guys, this, look, look, I love you all. I love our farms. We're great. We're really cool. You're really cool. I love you. But this isn't going to work, you know? So we got to, we got to find a way out of this situation. And that means you got to start, you know, um, giving Africans political rights and there's going to have to be elections. And eventually we're going to, they're going to have to be the people, the majority of the people of this country will be the people that determine what happens here. Um, and in return for that, he, the, basically the Rhodesians, the white Rhodesians are the only people who can vote, um, throw them out of office. Um, they're like, we don't want to hear it. Nah, 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 you know, um, and they turn instead to a man named Ian Smith, um, who is the leader of, of a party called the Rhodesian Front. And Smith basically says, we will never give up power, ever. This is going to be a white country forever and ever and ever. Um, and he runs on that platform and he wins. Uh, and from that point on, we're, it's the whole thing is clearly heading towards a war. You know, uh, uh, the second Chimarenga. Uh, between nationalist forces, African nationalists, and the Rhodesian Front. And um, after that war starts to get going in the early to mid-60s, um, Smith basically says, I'm tired of England calling me on the phone every day and saying, you have to, you have to, you know, we're ordering you to make a transition because you're one of our colonies. He says, so we're no longer one of their colonies. I declare independence the Unilateral Declaration of Independence, UDI, in 1965. Smith gets up and says, that's it. We're free. Sorry. We're not an empire. We're not a colony anymore. You have no rights over us. Uh, and that's the way it is. And we'll keep fighting. So that's how we get into the end game for what was once Southern Rhodesia. Is Ian Smith determines, I'm not leaving. And I'm not giving up anything really good segue because that leads to perfectly to our next question which was uh what was the impact of the second boer war on southern rhodesia and you just mentioned how it led to or is the was it the, so was it the beginning or like near the end of their road to independence so the second chimaranga yeah oh sorry second chimaranga yeah. excuse me so so what happens is there's two nationalist movements in southern rhodesia um uh and and they were kind of linked to the two different ethnic groups. So one of them is, is headed by a man named Joshua Nkomo. Um, and it's sort of connected to the Indibeli and its strengths are mostly in the Western half of the country in communities in the Western half. Not all of them Indibeli speaking, so some Shona speaking groups. Um, and then there's a, a formed a little bit later, another nationalist group known as ZANU. Um, and it, it eventually ends up headed by Robert Mugabe, um, although he, he wasn't the leader right at the very, very beginning. Um, and, and so these two, they're rivalrous. They don't like each other very much. They don't cooperate very well. Um, they have different alliances. So uh, Nkomo's party is connected to uh, Zambia and Kenneth Kaunda. Uh, uh, whereas ZANU and Mugabe are connected to Mozambique, which had just become independent from the Portuguese in the 70s through a, a liberation war. And both parties form um, sort of uh, armed wings. So they form like basically their own militaries. 
and they start to try and step up conflict with the Rhodesian army, which is mostly white. And it's basically every, every, almost every male uh, white Rhodesian is under arms, technically, I and mean, he's called in to fight in the militia. And in fact, uh, quite a few women on farms um, end up carrying, you know, automatic weapons as well in case they're attacked. Um, and the two parties in their armed wings pursue pretty different kinds of armed struggles. So the, the Nkomo party doesn't actually do a hell of a lot. And when they do, it tends to be big, spectacular attacks on things like trying to shoot down military aircraft. Whereas ZANU um, sort of tries in the eastern part of the country, working from bases in Mozambique to infiltrate small sort of peasant villages. Um, and they take basically the same line that, that Mao took in the Chinese revolution, uh, which is, you know, sort of, it's like, you know, swim among the people like the fish in the sea, you know, so that you can't be detected. Um, get the people basically on your side, um, the everyday farmers, Shona speaking farmers. Um, they often worked with local religious authorities, um, prophets and you know, people that had, were doing divination to sort of help gain support. Um, and they would have like a lot of farmers would sort of uh, run errands for them, bring food to them. Um, and they would kind of, they would move constantly to try and stay ahead of the Rhodesian front. They attacked white farms. They would put landmines down on roads to try and impede movement in and out of white farms. Um, they tried to put the pressure on as much as they could, and they were pretty successful. Uh, so the Rhodesian Front became pretty good at counterinsurgency and, and did a lot of, you know, bad stuff. Uh, th these kinds of wars are never very pretty wars. So on both sides, there were some atrocities. Um, and, the, and the Rhodesians became a, not only good at kind of uh, guerrilla warfare in their own right, so that their units tended to also be kind of out in the bush, quote unquote, um, you know, disguised or moving at night or trying to find guerrillas in their own base. But they would do, you know, they bombed uh, the bases over in Mozambique, even though it was in another country. Uh, they, uh, they seem to have been involved in a massacre at a church of folks that they suspected to be allies of the guerrillas. They would take villages and put them inside basically a concentration camps and they called those protected villages to keep the guerrillas from getting at the peasants. So it was a pretty ugly war in the years that it was really intense, which were about from 1973 to uh, 1978 or so. Uh, and then the, the Carter administration in the United States sort of was much bigger on human rights and trying to uh, broker a peace. And the British were putting a lot of pressure on, on the Rhodesians to, to come to a settlement. And then even the South Africans, this is still under apartheid, um, started to say, hey, no, guys, you know, you're, you're, uh, you're a vulnerability, like, you know, you're a publicity problem for us. Um, we have enough trouble defending our own racism, and now we're having to defend your racism. Um, so they had pressure from everybody. They had, there were sanctions on the Rhodesians. And so eventually, the Rhodesians are kind of forced to come to a negotiating table. They briefly try for one year to create a complete crap, fake country called Zimbabwe Rhodesia where they, they, they stage elections that Africans can vote in, but they can like only vote for Africans who are allies of the Rhodesians. Um, this guy, uh, Jeremiah Tarao, who was a traditional chief, 
couple of other sort of folks that had thrown in their hat with the with the Rhodesians and decided to be their allies. Uh, and that's just not going to work. So eventually the Rhodesians end up at the negotiating table and there's a thing called the Lancaster House Accords where they agree to a transition to free and fair elections in which all people living in the country can participate. And those are the elections that, that Mugabe and his party win by a landslide. Um, and, and Mugabe becomes the first executive leader of independent Zimbabwe. Now at this point, like the Zimbabwe has its own independence. So like as a post contextualization question, what were the effects of like colonization, maybe like modern day Zimbabwe? What effects still linger around today? Yeah. Well, the biggest issue that has been a, a really persistent thing um, is land. So that, that uh, you know, in South Africa, there was one gigantic major land grab that was overwhelming in, in 1913. Um, where the vast majority of the country's lands were taken formally, legally, well, by a government that, you know, uh, was legal technically from, from Africans and given to whites. In, in Southern Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, that happened in phases. So there were sort of phases of land appropriation, but, but the impact was roughly the same. By the time we get to independence in 1980, um, whites are owners of the best agricultural land in the country, um, that there are, are plenty of people who are alive who can remember the time in which they lost access to the lands that their people had, had worked, right? So have direct claim to land that was taken from them. Um, a lot of the, the what, what were called reserve areas where Africans in rural areas are, are kind of sent to live are not very agriculturally viable. Um, so, you know, people were maybe able to kind of feed their own family subsistence farming, but they certainly weren't able to do anything bigger. And the land size, the plot sizes in those communities were often very small. They were under forms of relatively arbitrary authority um, from people that the Rhodesians had appointed as quote unquote traditional chiefs, but weren't sometimes regarded by people as having proper authority. So the new government in 1980 knew it was gonna to have to do something to fix that. But in the negotiations, they had agreed to not take land from white farmers um, uh, without a whole set of conditions. So the land that they could take at first was if you if a white farmer owned more than one farm, they they were the government was legally entitled to um, take the the extra farm. If you were an absentee farmer, so like you wanted to live in London most of the, most of the time and just grow tobacco from a distance, you're going to lose that farm. Um, if you left your parts of your land fallow for too long, if you weren't growing on them. Uh, there was a set of conditionalities. And so they tried taking land that, you know, followed those rules and the pace of land acquisition was slow. So in the mid to late 1990s, the government, which was still ZANU-PF under Mugabe, um, tried to accelerate the pace of, of land appropriation from white farmers. And it did it in a, in a pretty lawless, violent way. Um, and it often was taking land that was actually pretty highly productive 
Um, so Zimbabwe in the 80s was sort of the breadbasket of internal South Africa. It was exporting food um, because they had plenty, they had food sufficiency, food security for the population in country. And the farms were so productive that they were actually able to export it to Mozambique, to South Africa, to Botswana. Um, so it was a pretty viable enterprise. And, you know, that was partly because these capitalist farms owned by whites um, had, had developed an infrastructure for market production that was pretty successful. So the, the, when ZANU-PF starts seizing land, they don't really have any plan for like how to say train smallholders to be productive for market. So they kind of sabotage the internal agricultural markets of the country. And they also frankly didn't give a, a lot of that land to, to small peasants. They took it for party officials because by the time we get to the late 1990s, the state has also become profoundly corrupt. I mean, and arguably the Rhodesian state was corrupt too. I think I call a state that reserves all the goodies for one part of the population based on their skin color corrupt. I think that's a pretty good word for it. But, but that's another part of the, the, the bad legacy of, of colonialism in, in Zimbabwe is that the Rhodesian state was a state built to violently dominate its own people and ZANU-PF didn't do anything to get rid of, say, a military that was large, that had largely been used to suppress the sort of uh, rights and, and capacities of most of the people of the country. They didn't get rid of the central intelligence organization that the Rhodesians had used to spy on, imprison, and torture dissidents. They kept it. Um, they didn't get rid of, you know, ministries whose job it was really not to liberate or empower people, but to do the opposite. They kept a state that was built to extract resources from people, dominate people. Um, they kept it completely intact. They inherited it. Uh, the first time I went, went to Zimbabwe and lived there for about a year, you know, you, you would go to government offices and fill in forms, and they were the forms that the Rhodesians had designed. And all it had is like, you know, the the name of the country would be scratched out and it just would say Zimbabwe on the form, but it was still the same form, same bureaucracy, same procedures. So I think that'd be the second big thing, the problem of land and its, and its maldistribution. And secondly, a state built to dominate, to be unjust, was kept substantially intact. Um, and those two things alone have, have been crushing burdens on Zimbabweans. And it's explained why the country has been you know, for most of its of its time as an independent state, uh, a site of violence, a site of oppression, um, and a site of, of profound you know, economic catastrophe. Well, that being said, uh, Enter, do you have any other questions? Nope, I think that's all the questions we had today. Well, thank you, Dr. Burke, for enlightening us on Zimbabwe history and all of the different events that happened. If you have any other comments you would like to have. No, I mean, I, um, I was, it's pleasing to have you guys be interested in this. Um, you know, I think the interesting thing about Zimbabwe to hold on to, you know, to me, as, as somebody who spent a lot of time there, is to try and think about, on one hand, those deep histories that disfigure so much of the modern world, and particularly the kinds of things that are associated with, with settler societies you know, where Europeans went out into the world and took land, took resources, um, moved in, tried to move or out or kill 
people who were there already versus you know, the question of what's the responsibility of the people who've had political power since 1980. And I don't want to let them off the hook. I guess that would be the last thing that it's really worth dwelling on. They, the folks, Mugabe and the people around him had choices and they made bad ones. And they made bad ones, not because they were incompetent, but frankly, because they were, I mean, for want of a better word, evil. They did some, they've done some things that have been incredibly destructive that they didn't have to do. And I think that's the, the problem of the modern world is we're groaning underneath uh, centuries of violence that emanate out of Europe and the structural inheritance from that. But, but we're also kind of um, in many, many places, the, the people who had a chance to at least begin to set things on the right direction have pretty consistently failed. Um, and, and if the 21st century has any hope of getting any better, we're going to have to overcome those centuries, but we're also going to have to find better leaders. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Katakar. Make sure to check out some of our other episodes on our website at katakar.media. You can also listen to them on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and many more podcast services. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to join us next time.